Well, thank you for all being here. Um, this is the second time this sermon's been done today um, with this reading from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. And I propose to divide my talk into two halves. In the first half, I would like to look at these seven verses in the context of the chapter as a whole, specifically how they fit in from verse 15 onwards to the end of the chapter, as it's important, I think, to see the, re the reason why they arose. In the second half, I would look, like to look at them more closely as they stand alone, without reference to the other parts of the chapter, but using other scripture to illuminate them. So to the first half. In these verses we're looking at, Jesus is being tested for the third time by the Pharisees and Sadducees. This period of testing was more likely to be on the same day as we gather from reading the chapter. It was quick fire testing alternating between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They'd intended to trip Jesus up in his words, as it says earlier in the chapter, but Jesus was able to counter them on these first two occasions brilliantly. And as we see in the third occasion, he does it again. In the first one, to quickly summarize, he countered the Pharisees on paying the poll tax, replying to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And on the second occasion, when the Sadducees tried to trap him, on the marriage at resurrection, he pointed out the incorrectness of their interpretation. And he said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So looking at the verses, this is the final go that Sadducees and Pharisees have in trying to trip Jesus up. What came to mind was it's a bit like um, they do in football teams or rugby teams, they all come together in a circle before a match to agree a strategy. And I can imagine the Sadducees coming together in a circle, crouching down and thinking, oh, we're going to really get him this time. Um, and then I thought it was worth noting that whereas Sadducees wouldn't normally be seen dead with Pharisees in the same company, their combined hatred of Jesus made them overlook their differences on this occasion because they wanted to bring him down. Seeing they wanted a successful hit against Jesus, it's no surprise that in the chapter that we, verses we're reading, they allowed an expert of the law to question Jesus. When we look at these verses, it's not obvious where the expert trap lies. They, the expert gives a seemingly straightforward question to which Jesus gives an indisputable reply. The expert asks, what is the greatest commandment in the law? to which Jesus gives the answer they would have expected. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I believe the intended trap here, however, lies in what they were not able to ask Jesus as a follow-up question. As in verse 42, Jesus jumps in to ask a question of his own to foil their attempt to trap him. Verse 41 suggests that this was a rapid response by Jesus. As it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked his question to them, not when they were gathered together. The question in 40, verse 42, which Jesus jumps in with, is what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Here, Jesus is basing his question to the Pharisees, I believe, on the thinking which lay behind the expert in the Lord's question. 
We do not see this thinking, but it's the link, I believe, between Jesus' answer in verse 40 and his question to them in verse 42, where Jesus says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? If you look at those two verses, there seems to be an inexplicable jump between the two verses, which question is, why did Jesus start thinking about the Messiah? So what might have been the Pharisees' thinking to lead up to a possible follow-up question to die to them because Jesus jumped in to ask his own? The thinking behind such a question, I believe, was to try to trap Jesus into admitting he was the Messiah and the Son of God. So a possible reply question, they might have said, may have been along the lines, you have answered correctly, wise teacher, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, the one and only one God we worship. It's worth noting here that the Jews did not believe in the Trinity or the duality of God, so an admission by Jesus that he was the Son of God was blasphemy under their law, deserving death. So this is why then, because of their utter hatred of Jesus, they might well have wanted to ask him, if your God is one, how is it we hear that you're making claims that you're the Messiah and the Son of God? Do you claim this for yourself? But Jesus here not only brilliantly stops them from asking this possible question, I believe, but in answering their thinking, points out from David's psalm that the Messiah is in fact the Son of God. We see this in verse 44. The Lord said to my, where he quotes from David's psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. I believe Jesus has a double victory over them. First, he deflects the Pharisees' aim to try to get to affirm his sonship, because his time had not come to declare that, to declaration to them. And secondly, he also affirms to them from Old Testament scripture that the Son of God exists, which they then could not dispute. And it goes on in verse 30 to 46 to say, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is hardly surprising, and perhaps the Pharisees wanted to make a hasty treat now, retreat now, not only because they had been shown up in the ignorance of Scripture, but also, I believe, because of what Jesus might have revealed of their private lives, particularly the expert in law who'd asked the questions, knowing that now he could read their thoughts accurately. So I feel they left disconsolately because they tried to trap Jesus and failed. This is my own interpretation of those verses, which you can take on, uh, on or not. When I was doing this, I thought, how different to the Samaritan woman at the well, searching for the truth. Jesus put her on the right track to find him, declaring to her even that he was the Messiah. How unlike the verses that we're looking at. So what can we learn from these seven verses in the context of their chapter, in the chapter? Firstly, I believe that Jesus can see directly into our hearts. Secondly, that we can't fool him. He knows when we're truly searching for him or when people are like the Pharisees and Sadducees were trying to dishonor him and trap him. In the first case where we're searching, he will find us where we are and deliver us and to set us back on the right path like the Samaritan woman. In the second, he will turn his face from those who are trying to test or trap them and leave them where they are, no better off. The Samaritan woman was amazed that Jesus knew so much about her. The Pharisees were disconsolate and disconcerted that they had been found out. 
So now going on to the second half of my talk, looking at the verses as they stand alone, it struck me when reading this commandment that Jesus here was giving this commandment direct to people, albeit the Sadducees and Pharisees. Whereas before in the Old Testament, he gave it through his intermediary, Moses, from heaven. It occurred to me, was this the first time Jesus had given the greatest Old Testament commandment direct to people? Having read this passage through a number of times, one word stood out, and that was the word hang in verse 40. At the same time as it stood out to me, I got a picture of my daughter's old wardrobe in her, in her room, the bedroom. The wardroom is long gone, departed with about the time my daughter got married, or just after. I have to say it was no great loss. I mean the wardrobe, I'm not my daughter. As it rocked from side to side when pushed, as a result of some dodgy DIY and putting it together on my part from a flak, tap, flak pack. Can't say that. The consequence of all this was that whenever you opened the doors, a not unpleasant jingle would greet you as the coat hangers without any clothes on knocked against each other. If you were too vigorous in the opening, invariably half the clothes would detach themselves from their hangers and end up on the floor of the wardrobe. The clothes could be said to have a precarious existence in the wardrobe, hanging on for dear life on the coat hangers. So what has this illustration to do with the Bible passage we're looking at? I feel the Israelites are a bit like the clothes in my daughter's wardrobe. Their lives were precarious, and they were only secure and blessed when they obeyed the first two greatest commandments. In so doing, the demands of the law and of the prophets were met, and their lives were not in turmoil, and they were able to observe all the other commands. Sadly, though, in the Old Testament, we read that the Israelites were complacent in observing the first two commandments and the other ones as well. They did not strive to love God and their neighbours, demonstrated by their failure to offer sacrifices in the right way, whether these were atonement ones for sin or in other offerings which we read about in Leviticus, which are very numerous. Their failure in demonstrating their love for God through sacrifice did not merely result in denial of blessing by God, but in receiving God's curse, which could lead to death. We read, not even those Israelites closest to God could escape his judgment. For instance, Leviticus chapter 10, we read about the death of Aaron's sons. And I'll read, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This seems very harsh to us in our New Testament times. God was a loving God to the Israelites, but his justice required under the law and his commands could not be ignored. So the Israelites were constantly in a precarious position, God's judgment hanging in the balance. Was he going to bless them through his mercy or curse them through his wrath? How different for us we're so blessed to have Christ in our lives, not to live in this precarious state. His precious blood shed on the cross, atoning for us all sins once and for all. God's justice being fully met in Christ so that we do not need to fear his wrath. Having considered God's first two commands under the Lord, I would like to illuminate them further by comparing them with the new command given by Jesus to his disciples 
in John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says to them, to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. When you compare this new command given by Jesus to his disciples to the greatest commandments under the law, it appears less rigorous on first looking than the Old Testament one. There's no mention here of the first command of loving God, but it seems to be only comparable to the second command of loving your neighbor. In fact, the reverse is true. Jesus' new command is not only more stringent in its demand, but also much more effective than the Old Testament one. The reason for this, I believe, hinges on how love is expressed and what it can achieve. In both the first and second commands of the Old Testament, love is a human love born of striving to love God with all one's might and one neighbors as oneself, as herself. In the new command given by Jesus, Jesus replaces human love with the requirement to love others with his love. Here is the massive difference. Under the new command, which applies to us as Christians, both Old Testament commands are included. They are not apparent in Jesus' new command because they are now evidenced in a different way through our love for others with Christ's own love motivating us. This is borne out in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, where Jesus says, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Thus, the human love the Israelites needed in the Old Testament to obey the first two commands was a weak one compared to the strong love we now possess in Christ to carry out the new command. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, expresses the strength of this love of Christ in this way. And I'll read it from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with to the measure of the fullness of God. It is because we are filled with God's love that our love for others is so much more effective than the Israelites could show with their human love in the Old Testament. However, of all the human loves, I was thinking, a mother's love for a child is possibly the strongest human love that there is, possibly because it's a self-sacrificing love. And I thought this was worth remembering for Mothering Sunday. So what can we take away from studying these seven verses in Matthew? In the first part of my talk, where we looked at the context of these verses within the chapter, I believe we can learn that Jesus knows our heart fully. We can't fool him like the Pharisees and Sadducees tried to do. He knows when we're testing him and, we, and when we're truly searching for him, like the Samaritan woman. That he will be found when we search for him with all our heart and will put us on the right path for our ultimate well-being. In the second part of my talk, where we looked at these seven verses as they stand alone, I think we can see that the love Jesus has placed in our hearts is immeasurably more than the human love the Israelites were exalted to show in loving God and their neighbours that we can see what a privilege Christ has wrought for us in making a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, so that we can receive his love shed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to love others, that God's justice has been fully met by his son's death. And finally, 
that we no longer, like the Israelites of the Old Testament, have to strive for God's blessing, but to have to remain in his love, as it says in John chapter 15, to enjoy his continual blessing. I'd like to finish on another picture. I told you how my daughter's rickety old wardrobe and its precariously hung clothes made me think of the precarious existence of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Well, a picture of another wardrobe came to mind, the sturdy dark wood one in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, where the clothes are secure, secure as the children pass through the wardrobe into Narnia. This is our wardrobe too, as we step through to find Aslim, our king. Thank you for listening.